Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading today is taken from the Book of Romans, um, chapter 11. That can be found on the Church Bibles on page 1139. That's Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Emily. Um, and thank you all for having me. Um, not just tonight, but on and off for the last 18 years. I think I, I first came in 2005 to forward. Um, but I mean, yeah, maybe I should say thank you for putting up with me rather than thank you for having me. But um, thank you too for, to Johnny and the invitation to, to speak tonight. It's the first time, I hope. I serve you well today and um, hope it's a good time for us all as we meditate on the Lord. Um, let me pray for us as we start. Oh Lord, as we come, we pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to ask you as we start tonight, what gets you singing what gets you worshipping? What gets you praising? What gets you going? Perhaps it's when the band is really killing it and you're playing the best sort of worship anthem. Maybe it's when the organ's blaring and we've got a good old hymn and you're loving it. Maybe it's when it's, the music's a little bit more quiet and reflective and you, you sense God's presence. What gets you worshipping? Well, here in chapter 11 of, of Romans, we see what gets Paul worshipping. For Paul, it's the truth about God. It's his theology. It wasn't so much about the music for him. It doesn't seem really in these verses that there's any instruments in sight. There's no sound system. It just seems like it's Paul and his God. And you might think, as the music minister, I might have picked at least chosen a passage that mentions music. Um, but my aim isn't just to focus in on music, but to zoom out slightly and think about biblical worship, to zoom out and think and, and try and get a grander, bigger view of what it is to worship God. Yeah, because, I mean, I want to do that because I believe the meaning of the word worship is a little bit confused and, and we maybe use it in a bit of a narrow way. Sometimes you might say, oh, I enjoyed the worship today and some people would, would mean, oh, the singing. It's not just the songs we sing, is it? Worship is so much more than that. It's not just the songs, it's the sermon, it's the prayers, it's communion, as we'll take later. It's every part of the service. And it's all of our lives. For we are always worshipping. But here's the problem. We don't always worship rightly. In our natural human state, we don't naturally worship God. We're in Romans 11, but just turn back with me very briefly to Romans 1. We're going to start there. So a couple pages back to page 1128. 
Romans 1, verse 18. Just give you a second. So Paul in his first chapter here says this about humanity. He says, the wrath of God, verse 18, is, going, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. It goes on and says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. This is a description of humanity. It's a description of us. Although Romans 1 says in creation, God's eternal power, his divine nature is clearly seen, we reject God. We reject his glory. We, we don't worship him. We'd rather worship created things and, and worthless things. So the question for us tonight is, are we going to worship rightly? We're jumping into the middle of Romans, and that's a, it's a little bit tricky, but, and it's a dense book. And there's quite a lot that comes, there's going to be in, in Romans that we can't, can't cover at all tonight. It's only a short sermon. Um, but I don't know if you're someone who highlights when you um, go through the Bible, underline. But Romans is a bit like this. It's, it's got so much good stuff in it. It's packed full of good gospel truth. And it's as if you might want to underline every, every single line because it's full of so much good things. Let me just remind you. We just, talked, we just looked at Romans 1. It reminds us about how mankind has gone astray. It goes on, chapter 3 talks about how none of us are good, none of us seek God, none of us are righteous. But chapter 3, we get these verses, 321, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. There's some great things, chapter 3. Then chapter 5, verse 1, it says we've been justified by faith. You don't have to find all these, don't worry. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 6 talks about our union with Christ, that we're one with him. Chapter 8, that great chapter, there's now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapters 9 to 11, we get this, this extended section on God's sovereign mercy. These chapters and this book are full of gospel gold. And our question tonight, how are we to respond to God? Well, what does Paul do? After considering all of this rich, deep gospel truth in what he's been writing, Paul bursts forth in praise. Turn back to chapter 11, where we're going to stay for the rest of tonight, if you're not already back there. 11 verse 32 finishes the section, it finishes the section on the mystery of how Jews and Gentiles are going to be saved. And Paul concludes, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then almost out of nowhere, boom, we, get, we get Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. In your Bible, these verses have got the title doxology. 
I wonder whether you know what that means. Basically, a doxology is a short, spontaneous ascription of praise to God. The word doxa is um, the Greek word for glory, and doxology means to ascribe glory. It's a, it's a song giving praise to God for his glory. And that's explicitly how Paul ends these verses in verse 36. He says, to him be glory forever. It's all about God's glory. So here we have Paul's heartfelt expression of praise preserved for us in God's word. So it's a precious example for us. It's meant to teach us and train us and help us as we think about our worship. And I think we've got a lot to learn from Paul here because there is so much confusion about worship. There's all sorts of vague ideas and wacky ideas floating around, but let's get into the word and let's take note and learn from Paul about what true worship looks like. We're going to see tonight that true worship is our right response to beholding God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ. Let's consider this together. If you're taking notes, here's the first point. True worship is about beholding God's glory. Notice how the first two sentences of these verses start. They are simply exclamations of praise of who God is. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. There's no mention of us here. There's no personal pronouns. There's no I praise you. Here I am. I lift my voice. I'll worship. No, it doesn't even say my God. There's no personal necessarily appropriation of God here. It's in these first two phrases, no human really comes into it. It's purely about God and his greatness. It's almost as if Paul's forgotten about himself, being consumed by the greatness of God. It's all about him and not about us. I guess that's maybe our first challenge for tonight. Isn't, isn't it so normal for us to want to make ourselves look great, to think of ourselves as the center of our universe, to think of ourselves in the center of the picture the whole time? That's just pride, isn't it? Pride is so ugly and incongruous because it's stealing the glory from the one who alone is worthy. Paul's praise starts very clearly and explicitly declaring God's glory. I think this might be one of the weaknesses of contemporary Christian music. I think so much we make it too much about us and ourselves. How much do our songs talk about what we're going to do for God and who we are and, and how much are we actually saying about who God is and what he's done for us? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there's no, there's no place for like personal expressions and there definitely is that personal dynamic of our relationship with God, of course. But my point here is that Paul's worship starts with the greatness and grandeur and majesty of God. And I think that is a good thing to remember in our own worship, personally, day by day, and corporately. Begin with God's might and his majesty before we think of maybe his mercy and his meekness. Begin with the greatness, begin with the grandeur of God before we think about maybe his closeness and his nearness. It's right to start by filling our gaze with God's glory, his holiness, his sovereignty, his power, his might. And that, that's what I try to do on a Sunday when I think about choosing songs. I don't hardly ever start a service where we start a song that's about us. I want to I think about 
God and get our minds off ourselves, get our eyes off ourselves and start with a song that's about God's glory, about his grace, about his work. It's because when we have a true vision of God, it will result in the true worship of God. We won't be able to behold God's glory. We wouldn't have been able to behold God's glory if he didn't display it to us, though. Paul would never be shouting this praise here if he hadn't first been shown how great God is. True worship, let's think about this, true worship begins with God and not us. And remember who is writing, it's Paul, the one who used to be Saul, the one who was blinded by the light when he saw Jesus and he was converted on the road to Damascus. He was an enemy of God and he's been brought to faith in Christ and now he praises God and writes books like Romans. God's intervened in his life. God acted. God initiated. We've already seen a little bit in the first 11 chapters of Romans that they're all filled with the truth about God's work, God's revelation, God's righteousness, his God's way of rescuing. The point is here, God's work comes before our worship. His action precedes our adoration. God reveals, God redeems, and we respond. We see this all through salvation history too. When God acts, when he saves, his people sing. With Moses in the Red Sea in Exodus 15, there's the song of deliverance. There's Deborah's song when God gave victory over Canaan in Judges 5. There's David's song when he was delivered from his enemies in 2 Samuel 22. Or there's the song when the ark was brought up in 1 Chronicles. There's other psalms of praise. There's the songs of Isaiah. There's Mary's song in Luke. And there's all the way through to Revelation, there's songs of the redeemed. People who've been saved sing. So when God acts, his people respond in praise. When God acts, when he shows his his character, when he shows his grace, when he shows the truth of who he is, it's only right that we respond to him in worship. And this is why we need the word, the truth about who he is, so that we can see him rightly and praise him rightly. Otherwise, we'd fall into idolatry, wouldn't we? We'd make God out to be some kind of God in our own image, and our own ideas. We need the truth here about God to worship him rightly. John Stott said this, he said, There's the indispensable, hence the indispensable place of scripture in both our public worship and private devotion. It is the word of God which calls forth the worship of God. So here in the beginning of his doxology, Paul talks about the riches of the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His unsearchable judgments, his inscrutable ways. He is saying God's wisdom and knowledge are so rich and so deep, we will never fully comprehend them, at least this side of eternity. We will never exhaust them. It's like a deepest ocean. We could keep delving deep and we'd never reach the bottom because God is infinite. He is immeasurable. He is inexhaustible. He is infinite. And his judgments and his ways, they are inaccessible. They're ununderstandable to human beings. I think this all means that we can keep reading, we can keep studying, we can 
dig deep into our Bibles, we can sing, we can pray, we can hear good sermons for the rest of our lives, and we'll never get to the end of marveling at how great God is. So true worship all begins with God, beholding his glory. And he's shown his glory to us. He's shown his glory, obviously we have his word, but it also says, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. God's eternal power is seen in all creation. But he's made his revelation even more clear in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has shown us the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The one who is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the one, the radiant imprint of God's glory. He's shown us his glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see God's glory revealed most fully and most beautifully in Christ, which brings us to our second point. True worship is about beholding God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ. Though Paul seems lost in praising God for his greatness and his glory, I don't think he's thinking vaguely here or abstractly. It seems like Paul's thinking more specifically about this great section that's just come from Romans 9 to 11, about the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles, concluding with 11.32, which says about his mercy that he has on all people. Paul is considering the depth of God's salvation plan, which reveals his grace, reveals his righteousness. And this is what moves Paul to praise. Just think about this as a helpful quote from Tom Schreiner. He says this, Paul is not thinking abstractly here, but concretely, of God's wisdom and activity with regard to the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul is thinking about how God arranged salvation history to maximize his glory by dispensing mercy at the appointed times to Jews and Gentiles. The focus here is on God's wisdom and knowledge in his saving plan. And God's saving plan is full of wisdom and knowledge. Isn't, isn't Christ and the cross called the power and wisdom of God? Jesus Christ, he's the center of this saving plan, isn't he? He's the one who died on the cross in the place of sinners like us, bearing the weight of God's punishment in our place. He is the one who's shown us mercy. We've received mercy in Christ. Us, undeserving sinners, we've received that mercy. We've been forgiven. In Christ, we see God's wisdom and power and knowledge perfectly portrayed in his saving work. So Paul is praising God, firstly, I think, and preeminently, thinking about the redemptive work accomplished in Christ. So the true worship for him, for Paul, is Christ-centered. True worship is Christ-centered. It's about beholding God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on, he says in verse 34, if you look down with me, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that God should repay them? What's the answer to those questions? No one. No one can know God's mind or advise God or tell him what to do. He's the source of all wisdom. No one can repay God or give back to him because he's the ultimate giver. He has shown us his incredible grace in giving us Christ. That's the, the best thing he's ever given us, isn't it? 
Just a little bit back in Romans, Paul said in 8.32, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how much more will he with him graciously give us all things? God has given us Christ, the ultimate gift, but he gives us graciously so many things. He's the ultimate giver. We're just the receivers. We can't repay him because it's all of God. It's all of his grace. Because of that, there's no boasting. There's another helpful quote here from a guy called Christopher Ash. He says, this exclamation of praise sums up the doctrines of grace in this letter, in this letter of Romans. Here, Paul stands amazed at the wonder of overflowing grace. No human being inventing a religion would have ever got anywhere near this beauty of grace. I think in these verses here, we, we get a sense of his grace in another way too. You see here, Paul praises God that his knowledge and wisdom, they know no bounds, that his judgment and his ways, they're unsearchable. But there is a bit of a paradox here, I think. Paul, see, Paul does know something of God's wisdom, something of his gracious ways, for he's seen them in Christ. We're not left like fools with no understanding, as Romans 3 says. But we have been granted understanding if we're Christians. God has opened our eyes. And though we will never fully know the depths and heights and breadth of Christ's love, this side of glory, one day we will. What we know in part now, we will know fully. We will fully know. What we struggle to get our heads around now about God and his works and the way he acts, the way he treats us, what we struggle to understand now, we will fully know, we will fully understand. And it will blow our minds. One day we'll see him our Lord, our God, face to face, and we will fully know. There's a day coming when we will behold Christ, the one who was crucified, the one who rose, the one who ascended, the one who is seated on the throne. We will see the Lamb, the one who's ransomed us, from the one who saved us. We will see him. And on that day, we will fully comprehend, we will fully know even though now, this side, we don't fully know God's, God's ways. We don't fully understand. We will see it one day. And as we gather each Sunday, we gather to fix our eyes on Christ. We look back on the glorious things he's done in the past, at the cross, in the resurrection, and we look forward, anticipating the day, the glorious day when he returns to reign. And we have nothing to do but praise and stand back in worship. That's the only right response, I think. And that brings us to our third point, which is more a little bit about some practical stuff. And there's so many things I'd love to say. There's so many things I could say from even just these short verses. I'm just going to say a few things. Five short things, hopefully. I promise they'll try and be short. So number one, a right response, a right response of worship is to be marked by humility. I think that's the main thing we can learn from Paul here. In light of his vision of God, he asks these questions. Who, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who, who can give him a gift? Who can repay him? No one. True worship humbles us, I think. I think the point is this true vision of God should always break our pride. It should give us a right perception of ourselves and make us humble. It makes us realize that God is great and we are not. He is wise, we are not. 
And that's the thing, we can't genuinely be praising God for his greatness if we're preoccupied with ourselves and our own grandeur or our own concerns all the time. I think in light of God's brilliance, all we can do is bow. In light of his greatness, we should be face down on the ground. I think that's something of what we see from Paul here. Beholding God's glory should make us humble. Yet we are naturally so proud, aren't we? We want to steal God's glory. I think sometimes I get that way when I'm, I'm leading and things like everyone's singing really well and the music sounded really good. I can get, I can, I mean, always our motives are mixed, aren't they? And I think I can, I can kind of enjoy it a bit too much and think, oh, this is great. Enjoying worshiping and thinking about what I'm doing rather than how great God is. I don't know what it's like for you in your life, but how does pride express itself? How have you got a big view of yourself and a little view of God? Because what this passage is showing is we need a bigger, bigger view of God and a smaller view of ourselves. And number two, a right response involves our affections, I think. Not just from this passage, but we see Paul all through his writings is quite clear about the need and the, the place of affections, our emotions, when it comes to our worshiping, our worship of God. I think a right response involves being affected by the truth, like Paul seems to be. Though Paul had a massive mind, it seems like he also had a massive heart that overflowed with praise. What he explored in his mind, he expressed in heartfelt praise. It was the natural response after he wrote chapters 1 to 11. He just went, oh, the depth, the wisdom, the greatness of God. For Paul, his analysis and his argument had to give way to adoration. So I think something we can learn here is that our true worship involves both our head and our heart. I think this expression here from Paul, he starts with this, oh, and it's not an oh no, it's not an oh well, it's an oh wow. It's an expression of wonder, it's an expression of joy. I think that's important for us to remember too. I think as evangelicals, we can maybe be too preoccupied with getting it right and preserving the truth. And we don't let the truth affect us. We don't let it affect us more deeply and bring us joy. And let me be clear, I'm not thinking about, I'm not talking about ungrounded emotion. We're not after just experience alone. It's easy to fall into worshipping the moment when we're here on a Sunday and loving it. It's not that. I think we need, when, it, when we're thinking about our emotional lives, when our affections before God, we need God's truth, God's word to guide us. We need the word of God to be the fuel for our emotional fire. Number three, a right response is word rich. It's the word of God which calls forth the worship of God. I think this is one of the reasons why we want to make a lot of use of scripture when we gather, not just when we read the sermon, the sermon text, but as Matt started off tonight, he started with Psalm 100, and after we confessed our sins, he went to 1 John chapter 1, and he used the word of God. We want to make use of the word of God because it's so rich and so powerful and so good. So when we gather on a Sunday, it should be a feast on God's word. I don't know if you noticed in chapter 11, when we got to verses 34 and 35, 
I don't know if you've seen, there's a little footnote, but those are actually from the Old Testament, those little quotes. One's from Isaiah 40, and one's from Job 34. And there's loads of significant stuff we could say about the Old Testament quotes here, but for now, I think that just shows us a point that Paul knew his Bible really well. When he was expressing his praise, he actually spontaneously seems almost quoted scripture. Scripture just rolled off his tongue. I mean, if you're anything like me, sometimes you might not know how to express your praise or your prayers to God. And it's good to remember we have God's word to help us engage with God. We can use the words he's given us. And we want our worship to be scripture-rich, both privately and corporately when we gather. So the words have a big part in our meetings from beginning to the end. And that's one of the other reasons why I think I, I want to think really, really carefully about the songs that we sing. I don't just pick them willy-nilly. I don't just think what's on the top of the charts or what's the most popular or what's been on the radio. Or I want to choose songs that are going to fit with what we're thinking about in the scriptures. I want to choose songs that are full of the truth of who God is and what he's done and our right response to him. I want to pick things, and that's what I try and do. I'm quite, I take time and I pray and I think about what we're going to sing together because I want us to be only worshipping in accordance with what's in God's word. Number four, we're almost done. A right response is all of life. I think it's really significant here. We didn't read it, but chapter 11 finishes and goes on to chapter 12, verse 1. Just see it there, chapter 12, verse 1. After this expression of praise, Paul then says, Therefore, I think in, in, in light of all of what he's written in chapter 1 to 11, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. These verses say, in view of God's mercy, we offer ourselves, our bodies, our whole lives. I think a lot of people want to emphasize this, this truth, and it's, it is true. All of life is worship, but I want to just help us think here that some people who say that, say all of life is worship, actually end up downplaying what we do when we gather. By saying that, they want, to, they want to make us think maybe less of, of what we do when we come together as church. And all of life is worship, but Sunday, when we come in this room for an hour and a bit, is also worship. It's really significant. God is present among us. God wants to come and bless us. God wants to come and minister to us as we gather as his people under the Lordship of Christ, under his word, in the presence of his spirit. So let's remember that. All of life is, it's the right response, it's all of life, and that includes this hour and a bit and the last one number five a right response is to be all about God's glory we're going to finish where we started true worship is all for God's glory do you see where he finishes verse 36 for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever amen this doxology, it starts with God's glory, it ends with God's glory. He's the beginning, he's the middle and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the every letter in between. He is the beginning and the end. He's the beginning and the end when it comes to creation and, and life. He's the beginning and the end when it comes to salvation. He's the beginning and the end. He is everything. He's the source of everything. 
Everything is from God, the great giver, the great sufficient giver. It's all of God. There's another, another quote. I found Christopher Ashe quite helpful as I was preparing. This, this quote is helpful for us. It says, All of salvation from its origin in eternity to its consummation in the new creation to the end in, in the new creation is of grace alone by the sacrifice of Christ alone, mediated to human beings by the Spirit of God alone, received empty-handed by faith alone. And because it's all without any exception from his grace, it's all without any exception to his glory. And if you just would let me just say something, I'm going to be careful here, but I think one of the things that I'd love to think about just for a second before we finish is how this is, I've been thinking about as I've been preparing, how what we've been through as a church the last couple of years. And... Uh, It's not been easy, has it, I guess? Um, I wonder whether, I wonder whether we had a, a sense. I've been around quite a long time, and I love this church, and you know that. But I wonder whether there was some sense of our own kind of big name forward. We're a well-known church. We're a conservative evangelical. We're a new church. We're a church that plants churches and, and trains leaders and grows forward, and just as I've been thinking about that, my question is, where's God in that? Where's God in that vision? Where's, where is he? There's lots of, there's so many good things we can do, and they're all, they are good things, they're good things, but where's God? Where's he mentioned? One last quote. Uh, Tozer said this, and I think this is, just speaks to the, what I just said. Tozer, A.W. Tozer's wrote a little book on worship. He says, I'm of the opinion that we should not be concerned about working for God until we have learned the meaning and the delight of worshipping him. I've just said, I? the last few years haven't been easy, but I think they have been good. I think they've been ordained of God. And I think they've been good if they've helped us recapture what it means to worship him, to recapture what it is to have a big view of God, the all-sufficient, all-gracious, all-glorious God, if we're being realigned in his purposes to see his glory, to be more the church he wants us to be, isn't that not a good thing? So, because it's all of grace, because it's all of his glory forever, we should worship him. True worship is our right response to beholding God's glory our right response to him as our creator, as our savior. Let me pray as we finish. Father God, thank you for the time we've been able to spend in your word tonight as we've thought about worship. And thank you that we get to sing your praises now. We get to think about your greatness. Lord, help us to be worshiping rightly help us to be beholding you for who you are and being full of full of wonder at the truth of who you are and all you've done and your grace towards us lord help us to to worship you rightly day by day and in those moments as we live out our lives for you help us to be the church you want us to be a church that is about making much 
of you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.